At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. Making the case go cold for over 50 years. Using the facts from 1967, we reopen the case for the lost boys of Hannibal. Can it be taken, taken at all? Were you looking for signs along the way? Did you see by your lonely light of day? Is this road really the only way? Can this road be taken? Taken it all. Welcome back to the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. My name is Frankie, and with me as always, Chris Ketters. I wouldn't do it with anybody else, Chris. Ah, so basically nice. because who would who would who could actually do this at this point? We're just too far into the game right now. And we're looking at things from a totally different uh, perspective, as you know. Yeah. Um, and as you heard at the beginning, uh, we are diving deep into this episode. And, and we're diving into some stuff that's, uh, Frankie, I'll be honest with you. When I started doing my research on this stuff, I was like, I was I needed to like go watch a comedy movie. Because I felt like I was getting way into a deep, dark area that I didn't want to get into anymore. Um, so... Be warned heading into this episode. I, you know, we try keeping things light. We try keeping them clean and, and all that, and we do a great job with that. But uh, this one, we have to. We want to dive into to what what's going on, what's gone on in the past, just so you can get an idea of of who's out there and and what the 1960s and 1970s were like uh, in some of these extreme situations. But the extreme situations that that were out there, Frankie. Yeah, we're covering a lot of different serial killers and spree killers and drifter killers. And Chris is actually, this is Chris's episode, and I'm kind of playing the, the the defensive here. I'm going to be coming up with some questions for Chris. He's been researching this now for little little over two and a half weeks, three weeks now. We did our live episode on Wednesday. went really well. We had a beautiful turnout, and we have over 300 views now. So people are catching up on that episode, so we were happy to do that for you guys. And sorry we had to lose a little bit of our rhythm, but as you know, everything going on in the world right now, it's a lot of podcasts have kind of died off. Um, we're involved in a couple networks uh, that we're actually thinking about um, – not being a part of anymore because I think we're doing good on our own. <laughs> right. And uh, a lot of them are just, uh, you know, they're, they, they're not producing shows or not doing shows. And I guess everybody's kind of caught up. We don't have that luxury. Um, we want to continue. And we basically reformatted our entire program this year uh, for this season. And we're diving into uh, some interesting things, looking for potential suspects if this is a criminal case. Uh, I think a lot of our viewers that vote it, believe it's criminal over lost in a cave but we're not ruling and this is to this is just to some of the people chris that you know did make some questions on on wednesday's live presentation we're not ruling out a collapse or the road crew or anything like that this is just one of the paths we're going down in season two and we started with john wayne gacy and i think that this is just do our due diligence and yes. mention all of them. It, it's, it's kind of just the way the episodes are flowing. And you brought up a good point there. Obviously, a lot of our listeners uh, are, are leaning towards criminal case. And they, they feel you know somewhat stronger towards that side. But we want to cover every single aspect. And we talked about this in the uh, the Facebook Live that we did. Is that you know behind me, you may have saw, and we're still doing this remotely. So my board's still sitting behind me here. But we have a list of about 18 different shows that we have planned for this year and they're not all about criminal cases they have to do with uh you know current rescue search teams for caves uh, in the country we want to get in touch with some of those guys uh we want to go down the path which i'm super excited about and i'm going to go ahead and give her a shout out i know she listens uh marissa ellison from modot 
uh, the Northeast Missouri district of MoDOT, is a real big fan of the show, and she's also helped us immensely in trying to find some research on that construction company. And so we will have an episode of that construction company coming up. Had to do a Freedom of Information request form, and uh, also found out, which I think is so cool as well, is that the state librarian is also a fan of our podcast. So when she got word that we were looking for this research, she was already kind of like looking into it, like thinking about it a little bit. And then once we sent the formal request in, she was she was gung ho and getting it done. So we're really excited about uh, having that. Work. I'm really excited about. Frankie, when I got the response back from them, they were saying I had like seven different areas that I wanted to I asked questions of. I wanted to get stuff back on. And the first six, she was like, those shouldn't be a problem. We should get them real quick. The seventh one might take a little bit more time. And so I was like, hey, that's not a problem at all. But it goes to show that what we're looking for, it has to do with things such as um, we're looking for the subcontractors for the construction company. We're looking for when the proposed start date and when the actual start date was. What was the bid that uh, J.A. Tobin Construction made and what were the other bids that were produced during that time period? I want to find those questions out because that may give you a little bit of indication of what that company was like. We've heard rumors that they're a low, they, they lowballed bids before uh, and, and if you've dealt in construction at all, lowballing bids usually doesn't end well. So that's something that we want to kind of find out. Was that true? Did they lowball? So those are the questions we're asking. We're excited. I'm sure once so we kind of get past this criminal case, so the the uh, the uh, the darker side, if you will, of of these uh, next uh, couple podcasts, uh, we'll kind of. I know we're going to be diving quickly into those MoDOT reports and giving you the real lowdown on our construction company. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, Frankie, uh, anything you want to add before I move on? No, it's just nice that we're finding. Um, fans in the places that we need them. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I think that, you know, I think everybody that's listened now and, you know, July will be, ce- July 9th, we'll be celebrating our year anniversary and, you know, hopefully we can be on the ground in Hannibal and do something. If not, we'll wait for fall and we'll do a beautiful fall fest or something. We'll bring out cider and have a meet and greet. Definitely wanting to be in Hannibal, wanting to be around our audience, wanting to be around our listeners. Um, at the same time, you know, it, it, it's just a, you know, we're not giving up and by any means we're just beginning. So, uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Chris, and let's get started on Robert. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll start that. Uh, Two more things. I just want to throw out real quick. Okay. Brought it up real quick. Um, is there was two and if you haven't listened to that facebook live don't feel like it's dated it's not dated yet so i would definitely advise you that if you're uh, on facebook or even if you're not i know that certain people that aren't on facebook are still able to access that video if you just go to facebook go to our page you can actually still access it and watch it even though you're not on facebook Uh, so keep that in mind but a couple quick things that came up real quick the one question that was asked was about the river stages uh, on the Mississippi River right around that time period of May 10th, uh, just to see if maybe the river was up and maybe there was a uh, thought that uh, the boys may have accidentally fallen in the river or something like that. I dug deep, was able to get to the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers website and find out that in 1967 there was no flooding going on. The river stages were real low, um, not not real low but they were normal normal river stages around 10 to 12 feet the um the uh, river stage for minor floodings around 16 feet so that gives you an idea of where um where things are at there so again no real issues with flooding it's just that um we wanted to check on that and make sure that that was good and then also the other thing if you're not a member i'm going to do the plug real quick frankie you're not on our discussion group make sure to head to our discussion group because uh, we put a map up there and of course our last episode we talked about uh, some of the boys that went missing around the area we expanded that search a little bit further out and there's a very interesting map that shows you all the missing persons locations from 1965 to 1979 specifically for ages 7 to 19 and specifically for males. And it's a very interesting map, and I would definitely uh, encourage you to check that out if you haven't checked it out So yet. So that's it. I- I'm caught up now. <laughs> now we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we begin to pull away from other networks. So we're going to stick around with Podcast Mo because it's in Missouri. Other networks, we're, we're thinking about making a, making a change there. And, and 
you know, Lost Boys of Hannibal is doing well on its own. It doesn't need any support. It is looking for sponsors. Um, so that's something that me and Chris will be doing on our own. And we've actually had some really good interest. And we just don't want to share that interest with any network because at the end of the day, we're trying to build money where we don't have to ask the audience for it so we can actually use some of the equipment that we talked about in the first two episodes. You know, that equipment's not cheap. And it, it costs labor and, 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 and guys to come out to operate that stuff. So hopefully our sponsors in the next couple things. And how do we get sponsors, Chris? Well, we never asked anybody for any money on our podcast. And I'd love to stay that way. And so how you can help us is leave us reviews. Leave us five stars on Apple iTunes, on any podcast, any, anything that you listen on from Stitcher to Pandora. If there's a place where you can leave a review and leave us five stars, that helps us. It, tremendously. When sponsors look at what we're doing in the community for true crime, uh, they look at the Lost Boys Hannibal and they go to the reviews and they're like, "We're right now we're we're averaging five stars." So that really really helps us. And that's our shameless plug. It's not for money. It's for reviews. We just need you guys to uh, uh, go on Podbean.com and just subscribe to the podcast. You don't have to listen there. It just gives us listeners. And then go to Apple iTunes or any other. Um, podcast listener that you guys use uh, we know that apple itunes is up there android player is up there stitcher leave us some good reviews guys so with that I'm and, and we Chris, enjoy it we enjoy it we we, we yeah the, well, we'll all selflessly plug is that i liked seeing the five-star reviews <laughs> so <laughs> it's always nice to feel like we know we're going in the right direction and uh doing the right thing and, and so those five-star reviews are definitely awesome but true uh, and we've actually made improvements to our audio based on those reviews mm-hmm. so have. you know it's it's stuff like that you know that really helps us feedback is is a it's a good feedback culture that we have at the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. And if you know us, and, and like I said, I mean, we have some episodes planned. We've we've really looked at season two as this really fun season to kind of take deep dives into things. And, and uh, it really came up on head. We were a little worried there after episode two, like, where were we going? You know, but I think we're... We're, we're, we've got an exciting show for you today, and we might go a little longer, but I don't think anybody's minding because, <laughs> man, we're getting some downloads lately. So. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, so um, let's let's dig in. Are you ready? I think you're doing um, a, a, a fellow alumni of the school I went to, uh, uh, Robert Bordella. Yeah, that's the first one. Uh, and again, uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier, something I've been you said I've been researching this for a couple of weeks. Well, there's two individuals that we're going to talk about today that since about last July have been on my you know my my numbers, my percentages list. Um, the Chris stats. My yeah, Chris stats. Yeah. So <laughs> these two guys have been on my list for a while. Um, and I will tell you, I'm going to go ahead and give you a precursor to this: is that. Uh, my percentages changed after doing the research the last two weeks. So, and in fact, um, you know what? I'll leave that till later. <laughs> but I'm going to remind you because last time I don't think we got into it like we wanted to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Write a note so for yourself. Right I'm now, actually making me. a note right now. Just <laughs> that, that, that we get back to that. Because uh, yeah. uh, so Chris is Chris is recording in Louisiana, Missouri, and I'm recording in St. Louis. So we're even keeping the COVID um, quarantine stay in the house stuff you know we're taking that seriously so we're we're yeah. listening to the authorities on that so yes for we're sure. not being irresponsible over here what we're saying. <laughs> right yeah uh so anyway so let's jump in so the first name we've talked about before and i'm going to give you a little bit more of a deep dive into this uh, the first man is going to be robert Burdella, and as you mentioned he uh went to so i'm guessing you went to kansas city art institute i went to the art institute school system um, and I taught at the art institutes for over f- four or five years. Oh, wow. So w- was familiar with Robert going to the, the Kansas City Art Institute is one of the best, um, w- was one of the best in that circuit of schools. There was Fort Lauderdale, which is where I went, which was a really good school, San Diego and Kansas City were the top three schools of art institutes. A lot of great students came out of those schools. So it was interesting to see him come from the art institute family. Yeah, so uh, he ended up going there in the summer of 1967. So the reason why that we put him on our list of possible people of interest uh, is that because he originally was from Ohio. He graduated from, uh, I I might butcher this, Cuyahoga Falls High School. That's right. Oh, I got it. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, Cuyahoga County is is the big county there. So, Do you know what city that's in? Uh, Cuyahoga, yeah. Uh, Cuyahoga County is, I want to say Columbus. It's either 
Yeah, I think it is Columbus because I think Franklin County is Ohio, Cleveland. Okay. So okay. yeah. Yeah, I yeah. didn't have that on my on my information here. So uh, so anyway, he he graduated. The interesting thing was he he was a bright student uh, when he was growing up, but however he uh, wasn't uh, very attentive, and, and teachers had a lot of problems with trying to keep his focus. He was kind of a little bit of a troublemaker, but he was very smart. So smart, in fact, that they let him graduate uh, a little bit early. And so he decided to make the jump to go to the Kansas City Art Institute, and that was in the summer of 67. And the reason why we bring this up is because uh, if you go on Google Maps and you think 1967, uh, go from Ohio to Kansas City, there's a couple of different ways to do that. One of the ways would be out through St. Louis. Another way would actually be through Hannibal to get to Kansas City. So that is an interesting little tidbit that, you know, you could put Bordella in Hannibal right before he started school at the KC Art Institute in 1967, which puts him right in that time frame of uh, when our boys went missing. So keep keep that in mind. Yep. So Cuyahoga is Cleveland. It is Cleveland. Okay. Okay. Good okay. deal. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so real quick here, he was in there. He was at the Art Institute till 1969. He withdrew voluntarily, and uh, after receiving some harsh criticism from the college administrators for killing and then cooking a duck for the sake of art. Don't hear that happen very often. <laughs> um, so that's a, a little bit deep. So then we get into his first known victim. His first known victim wasn't actually until 1984. He was a 19- wait, wait, wait. He killed a duck. Yeah, yeah. He killed a duck and then cooked it at the college. Okay, and you did get that um, Cuyahoga is city of Cleveland. Yes. Okay. Are you trying to make Just a connection to make sure. there? Biscovy uh, Ducks in Cleveland? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure. thought you had a connection there. I wasn't sure where you're going with that. So, Brudella, he went with uh, going to his first victim. His first victim actually wasn't until 1984. It was a 19-year-old named Jerry Howell with whom he had closely reacquainted in the year prior to his murder and who he abducted on the promise of driving the youth to attend a dancing contest uh, nearby. According to Bradella, he piled, plied, excuse me, plied Howell with alcohol as well as some different sorts of drugs um, to make him unconscious. Uh, he then injected Howell with a heavy tranquilizer before binding him to a bed. So that was the first victim. Uh, the final victim was March 29, 1988, so four years later. It was a 22-year-old male prostitute named Christopher Bryson whom he lured to his house upon the promise of payment for sex. At Bordella's home, Bryson was knocked unconscious with an iron bar and then bound to Bordella's bed. So this is how why he was the final victim, is because Bryson was kept pretty much uh, tied up in the house for multiple days, and Bordella ended up becoming a little bit more easier with him, like he would be a little bit less restrictive. Uh, so Bordella would go off to work, and he was still being held, uh, this Bryson was still being held prisoner. And so he would end up giving him like a remote or something so he could watch TV. And so ends up finding out that uh, Bryson is able to find some matches that Burdella left in the house. He was able to burn off. He had, <clears throat> excuse me, he had a uh, rope tying his arms together and he was able to burn the rope and then escape the house. And then he ended up uh, getting free. Uh, Bryson was questioned by the police. He stated that Burdella showed him a Polaroid picture of men. He had unsuccessfully attempted to quote collect as his sexual slaves. Uh, they, that was enough obviously to issue a search warrant. They searched the property. They found the burnt rope. They also found some syringes and prescription drugs, a pipe, uh, various lengths of rope. And upon further searching, a human skull was found as well as a partially decomposed head in the backyard. The search also found several other human potty parts throughout the house as well. So you would think, and it did evidently, uh, obviously, give a, uh, that was enough to arrest Bordella. So he was arrested, <clears throat> excuse me, and he was charged with one count of felonious restraints, one count of assault, seven counts of forcible sodomy. He was held in protective custody in Jackson County in lieu of a $50,000 bail, which in today's money is about $1.1 million bail, which is, is pretty significant uh, for that time period. So <clears throat> they found more stuff in the house. Uh, they found another skull. They found some more dental 
uh, items. And to make a long story short, they ended up finding a total of six different bodies in the house uh, that was from Bordella. And then they found tons and tons of Polaroids as well in the house. So uh, obviously that uh, was enough to put him on the hot seat. Bordella, he ends up getting, uh, knows that he's not going to get out of this. So he ends up, uh, plead, he initially pleads not guilty to five of the counts, uh, but he did plead guilty to one of the counts that was for Christopher Bryson, the guy that was the last one that was there um, before he got free. So despite the initial plea of not guilty to the remaining five murders with the agreement of his defense attorney, Bordella ultimately conducted a plea bargain with the prosecutors to avoid the death penalty in the remaining charges. The plea bargain, uh, he agreed to confess in detail about who he killed, how he did it, um, and where the bodies were held were at in his return for his cooperation. The prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty. Uh, in 1988, he formally waived his rights to be tried on any of the outstanding murder charges, and uh, he ended up uh, pleading guilty on all of them. And uh, so they they held off on making sure he didn't get the death penalty. So that's kind of a, a layout. He knew he was in trouble, and so he just went ahead and um, said, "Yep, I did it." Uh, just to finish wrapping up things on Robert Burdella, he uh, died. In 1992, after this is kind of an interesting story, he contacted a counselor who he had met when he was first incarcerated. He informed the person that his distress due to the staff at the Missouri he was distressed due to the staff at the Missouri State Penitentiary withholding his heart medication. Uh, in October of 1992, Bordella complained to the prison staff of heart pains. He was taken from his cell to the infirmary. Uh, the medical staff determined his heart was unstable, called an ambulance. He was taken to a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, and pronounced dead of a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. on October 8, 1992. He was 43 years old when he died in 1992. And that is the Kansas City Butcher. Wow. So there's a little bit of controversy there with the... Now, is that the same Missouri State Penitentiary that's closed now and it's like a big haunting thing? Yes. Yes. Uh, wow. And that's when I believe there's... Uh, James Earl Ray was there at one point in time. And the first female to be executed was there from the Greenleaf's mm -hmm. case. Yes. So it's 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 got... I think it's electric chair or, or injection. Lethal injection, I think. Lethal injection. Yep. And they have two yeah. chairs. Uh, it's one of the only... Uh, only one of the places in the country that has a has a death chamber that has two chairs in it. Uh, that's uh, very very odd. I don't think there's any others in the country that are that way. And the reason they did that was because uh, there was two. There was a husband and wife, and they wanted to execute them at the same time, and so they put another chair in there for both of them. <laughs> that, that that was probably the the green. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they did some interesting things at that uh, that haunt. We actually met the owner of that at a conference, and uh, we, we, we had planned on doing an episode live from there for the other podcast. But it's interesting that he served time there. A lot of people went through those hallways. Uh, so his relation to Hannibal is just essentially just the the drive, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he, he would have gone through Hannibal at around that same time period as the boys went missing, right? Yeah, I mean, and it, I haven't got a specific date of when he went to Kansas City, but it does specifically say, like, he graduated early, and then it was the spring to summer of 1967 when Bradella went from uh, Cleveland to Kansas City. So it does put him in, in the neck of the woods of, of being in Hannibal. Now, and again... Uh, obviously, he didn't have his first murder until 1984, so you're looking at 17 years later. So, And I will point out, and I don't remember who it is, and I apologize for that. Somebody did point that out on our discussion group, because I had him at a pretty decent percentage. I think I had him at like 4 or 5% a chance it was him, until I really started in, in researching him and finding out, boy, it was really 17 years later. He was not known by any means of being a... Um, violent person until uh, he got into the 80s so I, I again this in this information going back to your note from earlier to to ask me again later on this was enough information for me to actually eliminate him as one of our possible suspects yeah our boys are a little too young but it's good that we went through it just so like we covered it um he was a 
he was a decent looking kid too when he was younger um and uh, pretty much a from all accounts was a pretty talented artist as well uh just unfortunately you know that's another thing that 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 we just don't know you know you just don't know why these things happen and hopefully you know maybe there's something coming up in the next couple of weeks that will explain all this to us yeah exactly. um so you're going to move on to uh someone that that i i have a i would say a decent percentage of of possibilities but you have some interesting uh stuff on charles ray hatcher correct that yeah. that kind of lead to you thinking well it's possible but there's something about his unique uh, closing of a, of a murder that that just doesn't make any sense to you <laughs> yeah well and i think with charles ray hatcher uh, he was somebody that before I researched this in the last few weeks, his percentages were pretty low too, like four or five percent. It has gone up pretty dramatically since, just because of, uh, and we'll get into this, just because of of timing and what he's known for. So yeah, so let's dig into Charles Ray Hatcher. He was born in Mound City, Missouri, which is a small town about 30 miles to the north of St. Joseph, Missouri. St. Joseph, Missouri is a three hour shot from Hannibal. It's straight across our very well known highway 36. You go straight into St. Joseph from Hannibal. Um, and he, uh, so you're looking, St. Joseph is northwest Missouri. It's right, it's north of Kansas City. It's over in that corner of the state. So that's where he was, was born at. Uh, real quick, I don't have a real paper, I didn't write down information about this, but I did find it very interesting uh, that his younger brother was killed, was electrocuted when he was, I, I like, want to say like 11 or 12. It was due to them finding some copper wiring in a car and they used it to make a kite and the kite hits a electrical line and electrocuted yep. his brother but it happened like his brother was getting ready to hand him the rope or hand him the kite and right as he was get before he handed it to him that's when he got electrocuted so Jesus. Like, crazy a little side story but uh not really in depth but still kind of crazy that that happened so in 1947 hatcher was convicted of auto theft this was his first uh, his first crime, he stole a logging truck in St. Joseph, Missouri. He received a two-year suspension sentence. In 1948, he was convicted of auto theft for a second time. He stole a 1937 Buick in St. Joseph. And so this time, Hatcher was sentenced to two years in what state penitentiary? Missouri. The Missouri State Penitentiary oh my in God. Jefferson City. On June 8th, 1949, Hatcher was released from prison after serving a little more of half of his time. He was back in prison, however, just a few months later after being convicted of forging a $10 check at a gas station in Maryville, Missouri. Maryville is northwest to north central Missouri. Uh, on March 18th, 1951, Hatcher escaped from prison and attempted a burglary. And guess what? He was caught. So he got two more extra years in prison. After serving additional time, Hatcher was released from prison in 1954. He stole a 1951 Ford from Oric and was subsequently sentenced to four, year prison, four years in prison. Oric, I think, is still in uh, northwest Missouri. Um, before he was sentenced, Hatcher agreed to, <clears throat> excuse me, Hatcher attempted to escape from the Ray County Jail in Richmond, and he received additional two years for trying to escape from jail. On March 18, 1959, Hatcher was released from prison after a sixth prison sentence of his life. And let's see, he was born... I don't have the year that he was born, but you're looking at probably within a matter of uh, 12 years of his first crime to 1959. He was in prison for six times. Uh, and, of course, tried to escape twice as well. Uh, so now we go on to June 26, 1959. Hatcher attempted to abduct Stephen Pellman, a 16-year-old in St. Joseph, who was delivering newspapers. He threatened him with a butcher knife. Pellman reported the crime, and Hatcher was arrested when the police stopped him in a stolen vehicle. Stolen vehicle again. So that was 1959 when he made his first abduction attempt. Hatcher, that kid, that kid yeah. got away. Yes, yes, he did. And then put him away, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Hatcher, he was sentenced to five years in the Missouri State Penitentiary once again for the attempted abduction and auto theft under the Habitual Crimes Act. While Hatcher was waiting to be transported to prison, 
he unsuccessfully attempted to break out of the county jail. When Hatcher arrived at the Missouri State Penitentiary, he claimed to be the most notorious criminal in Northwest Missouri since Jesse James. That is a quote from him. He stole cars. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, So we go to 1961. Uh, At this point in time, uh, he's in prison at the Missouri State Penitentiary. And a 26-year-old inmate named Jerry Therrington was found raped and stabbed to death on the floor of the prison kitchen loading dock. He had been repeatedly stabbed in the back. Hatcher was the only individual missing from the kitchen crew at the time of the murder. He was sent to solitary confinement for Therrington's murder. However, they never did have enough evidence to convict Hatcher in court for the crime. So this kind of marks, Frankie, our first potential murder by hatcher and what is how old do you think he is i mean what's a ballpark of how old he is um i can actually probably give you a specific uh so he's born in 29 and this is 61 so he's 32 wow so that's what we're looking at so ironically and we can go into a whole nother discussion about how the criminal justice system may be a little bit messed up in this situation and you're going to feel it as we go more in depth with uh charles ray hatcher's background (laughs) uh after his sentence uh, after this murder his sentence was reduced to three quarters its original time and he was released from prison in august 24th of 1963 all right unbelievable here we go so now we move So we're going through the years. There's no real information between 63 and 69 about the whereabouts of Hatcher. I will tell you, I do have a book coming, and uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's called St. Joseph's Children, A True Story of Terror and Justice. Um, I do have that book coming, but obviously everything's a little bit slowed down now with everything going on. Uh, But if we find out more, I'll pass it along. But I'm trying to find out more information about that six-year time period because we moved to 1969 and Hatcher is in Antioch, California at this point in time. And he confessed to abducting a 12-year-old named William Freeman from Antioch. And that happened on August 27th of 1969. All right. On August 29th of 1969, six-year-old Gilbert Martinez was reported missing in San Francisco. According to the six-year-old girl with whom he was playing with, Martinez walked away with a man who offered him ice cream. He found he was found by a man walking his dog as a boy being beaten and sexually assaulted. Police arrived and arrested the assailant, who identified himself as Albert Ralph Price, although he carried identification with the name How- Hobart Prater. Martinez served the assaults, uh, survived the assault, I'm sorry, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations later identified it as our Charles Ray Hatcher. So he does have aliases now that he's going by. And he's doing all this in California, right? So this, yeah, we're in 1969, we're in California, Antioch and San Francisco are the two towns. This Uh, is three years away from the boys, but he's definitely in the same age group of the boys. Yes, definitely the same yeah, and ahead. this kid Martinez gets away as well. Yes, yes, he is not. Neither one of them are are killed. Um, from 1970 to 1975, Hatcher was sent back and forth between prisons and hospitals. One psychiatric person diagnosed him as having a passive aggressive personality with paraphilia and pedophilia. Uh, and so now we're going to quick quick stream real quick between 1978 and 1982 uh, september 4th 1978 hatcher was arrested under the name richard clark in omaha nebraska this is 1978 for sexually assaulting a 16 year old boy he was sent to the douglas county mental hospital released a year later in 1979 uh, on may 3rd 1979 hatcher was arrested for assault and attempted murder after he tried to stab a seven-year-old thomas morton he was sent to the norfolk regional center a mental health facility after the charges were dropped in 1980 hatcher was released from a facility but was sent back two months later after another assault he he escaped uh, from that mental facility in september of 1980 
In October 9th, 1980, Hatcher was arrested as Richard Clark in Lincoln, Nebraska for an attempted assault and sodomy of a 17-year-old boy. He was sent to another mental facility and released after 21 days. On January 13th, 1981, Hatcher was arrested by as uh, Richard Clark once again in Des Moines, Iowa after a knife fight. He spent several men, uh, spent time in the mental health facility again and he was released in April of 1981. <laughs> but he's not killing any people. He, 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 well, he did kill, supposedly he killed the prison, thing. the prison guard, but, uh, he hasn't. Yeah. I think you're right. There hasn't been any known deaths yet. Well, this guy, clearly mental facilities are doing their job and their due diligence when they're releasing this guy back into society. I mean, let's go back. I think from, I, I think if you want to put this into terms of, of if you want to apply to our case in 1967, I think that you can make the argument that he is, um, obviously the, male you know you want to say 7 to 20 is his kind of his who he's looking for so you got you got the age group that's there you also have the type of gender that is there the, you're right though that you don't see a lot of him actually murdering people most of them are getting away and I will go ahead and tell you this now. We got a little bit more. We're just going to cover something kind of interesting that did happen uh, in St. Joseph in 78, kind of going back a little bit, and then we'll talk about his death. But I do want to point out, and we will have this up on the um, up on our discussion page, a very interesting PDF, and it was done by the Department of Psycho- Psychology in Radford, Virginia, and it goes through his complete history. Uh, which is very interesting. It's a few pages. It's it's done in a like a uh, done in like an Excel format and kind of really digs in deep. And I would highly recommend that everybody take a look at this, kind of dig in. But also, Frankie, you, you'll you'll really like this. Is that it actually goes into like the psychological background of him. So it talks about you know was um, let's see I'm gonna dig down here. It talks about his work history, his his sexual preferences. It talks about if he tortured animals as a kid, if he was a bedwetter as a kid. Um, so it's very, very interesting stuff. Um, yeah, so I, we'll put that on the discussion page because there's a lot of good stuff there that you can really dig in deep uh, with Charles Ray Hatcher about. Which means you have to join the group there you go. to Again, see that there's stuff. A, a shameless plug <laughs> for our discussion group. Uh, so... <laughs> Real quick here, let's jump over. This is a really interesting case. Uh, the The guy's name is Melvin Reynolds, and we're still talking about Hatcher. Uh, but on May 26th of 1978, four-year-old Eric Christian disappeared from downtown St. Joseph, Missouri. His body was later found along the Missouri River. He had been sexually abused and died of suffocation. One of the suspects was Melvin Reynolds, a 25-year-old man who had been sexually abused himself as a child and who had homosexual experiences as an adolescent. Reynolds, although agitated by the investigation, cooperated through several interrogations over a period of months, including two polygraph examinations and one interrogation under hypnosis. On February of 1979 the police brought in the still cooperative reynolds and gave him another round of investigation another round of interrogations the interrogations lasted for 14 hours and they included questions promises and threats finally reynolds gave in and said i'll say so if you want me to so he never com- uh, he never said that he did it so in the weeks that followed, Reynolds embellished this confession with details that were fed to him deliberately or otherwise. That was enough to convince the prosecutor to charge Reynolds and convince the jury to convict him of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. But get this, four years later, Reynolds was released when Charles Hatcher confessed to three murders to an FBI agent, including that of Eric Christian. Wow. So, yeah, it said about the murders. It's interesting because it goes. That, it's interesting because it goes back to him. You know, he's caught and he's gonna. 
it was the same thing we talked about with John Wayne Gacy, right? Where it's like, well, here you go. You have somebody that, um, if you're going to admit to it, you're going to admit to it. You're caught, mm-hmm. you know, and there are different mindsets. I mean, clearly he did kill a four-year-old, which is terrifying. Um, and it just, it just seemed like his age range was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was definitely just male, you know. But going back <laughs> to what you're saying about not having uh, no murders, now we have him confessing to three murders. Of now, here's the interesting part, and I want to go ahead and dig into this. Is that um, we didn't get it in time for this podcast, but we're still going to research it. We're trying to find exactly who has his confession, um, and that is very difficult. Uh, we assume. That, well, and I, we don't even assume. The problem is, is that he confessed to an FBI agent. So does that mean that the FBI has the report of his confession? And if he does have the report of the confession, who else is on that list of him killing? So we're still trying to find out how, where to even submit a freedom of information request to, to find out if we can get some more information. Because it'd be very interesting if, again, this is completely hypothetical but say that we have a 1967 murder that he confesses to in this confession and nobody knows nobody connects the dots so we want to keep an eye on that but we need to find out who it is we got our research group working on that trying to track that down so hopefully we can we can get you more information about that as we go along but yeah that's great so finish up we're going to finish up real quick on, on Charles Ray because this is where it gets interesting. If you've never heard anything about Charles Ray Hatcher, his death is very intriguing. Uh, so anyway, let's go on. So on July, July 29th of 1982, an 11-year-old Mitchell Steele, uh, actually I believe that was Michelle Steele, was reported missing from St. Joseph. The day after her uncle found her nude, ravaged body on the banks of the Missouri River, she had been beaten and strangled to death. Hatcher was arrested the following day as he tried to check in at the St. Joseph's State Hospital. While waiting trial, he confessed to 15 other child murders dating back from 1969. The first victim, 12-year-old William Freeman, had disappeared from Antioch, California in August of that year, one day before Hatcher was charged with child molestation in nearby San Francisco. In another case, Hatcher penned a crude map that led researchers to the remains of a 28-year-old James Churchill buried on the grounds of the Rock Island Armory Arsenal near Davenport, Iowa. It was then that he also confessed to the murder of Eric Christian. He was convicted of the Christian homicide in October of 1983 and drew a term of life imprisonment with no parole for at least 50 years. Facing his second murder conviction a year later for the murder of Michelle Steele, Hatcher requested the death sentence, but the jury refused, recommending life on December 3, 1984. Four days later, Hatcher hung himself in a cell at the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. Well, I know why that place is haunted now. Uh <laughs> It's just, it's a series of craziness. Uh, here's the thing with Ray Hatcher, though. He's admitting to all these things. He doesn't bring up the boys. And he says, it does say that he the child murders dating back to 1969. Now, again, anytime, in my opinion, anytime you go into this research, and we're getting this second-handed, we do not have official police reports. It is very easy for somebody to put two and two together and say that, okay, this this uh, this Antioch molestation case, the Antioch, California, where, where the child got molested, that's his first case. And you're implying that this was 1969. So, he, you know, because you see what I'm saying, you're trying to connect two and two together. So just because, uh, say, oh, he, he's... He, And let me reread this. While awaiting trial, he confessed to 15 other child murders dating from 1969. Then the next sentence is, the first victim, 12-year-old William Freeman, had disappeared in Antioch. I I, I worry, anytime I do this research without having actual evidence from a a police report, it bothers me that people are taking assumptions of putting things together. Right. Well, that's just journalism in America right now. Yeah. Yeah. They take what they want, they discard the rest, and that's why we have feuds between all these people that we never normally would have fought with had they just reported the entire thing the way it was supposed to be reported. But that's another podcast. Uh, here's the, th- the thing here is that's strange is that, are you saying, because I'm like an audience listener, are you saying that it's possible 
that he admitted to killing the three boys in Hannibal, and it's written somewhere? <laughs> Possibly. Um, I, because it was such a big case, Chris, and uh, you would think that that would have been like, hey, like we know who did it, you know, like a, a whodunit at that but point. But here's the thing, and I think you've got, and I, I can't wait to talk to somebody that, that was really involved with this type of stuff in the 60s, but it, even so, even going to the Gacy stuff, when you have him doing bad acts in Chicago and him possibly should have been put back in jail because he was on parole in Iowa. There's a Mm -hmm. lack of communication, even in the seventies that says that, you know, these, these, these States are not talking to each other. There, there's no, um, there's no computer database where you punch in a number and uh, punch in a driver's license number. It's going to pull up all the information about all these crimes that this person's committed. That's not in existence in 1970s. So it's surely not in the 1960s. So it, so let's just say that he commits, he, he, he admits to the FBI agent that, that is 1967 instead of 1969. That FBI agent, I guarantee you, has no idea. Well, and then this brings up another point. He has no idea what happened in Hannibal in 1967. More importantly, there's no missing persons from 1967 in Hannibal. Because we've talked about that. There's nothing in anything, in any report, saying that there's three boys that are a missing persons case in Hannibal, Missouri from 1967. They're all... Um, there's just nothing out there. You see what I'm saying, Frankie? Yeah, but if he... Yes and no. I mean, he was really clear on Antioch, and he was very clear on the kills that he did have. You would think that if somebody said, yeah, I killed three boys in Hannibal, Missouri, that that would raise some kind of red flag and be like... I mean, when did he admit to all this? When did he confess to uh, all this? This was... He confessed in, it looks like, 1982... So our police report from Neff, the 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 captain, Captain Neff, is in the eighties. And the FBI field agents say that, you know, that was all on John Wayne Gacy. But Neff never looked into others that we Charles know of. Hatcher, yeah. That we know of. Um I mean, it could it be that crazy that it's just floating out there? I mean, that seems highly uh Unlikely. That brings up another point to you, to Frankie, and something we brought up with with uh, Gacy is that Gacy. I've always held to the assumption Gacy had nothing to lose, and that he had no reason not to tell the truth, and that makes it difficult for me to believe that he has anything to do with the Hannibal boys. You look at the Hatcher case, and you look at who he was, and and he got to the point where. He, he started admitting to what he was doing. And I think it was an issue because going back to what the issues is with the legal system is that he thought, well, hell, I'll be back out on the street in two years because I've happened 10 times now. Um, so he just started admitting. And I don't know, maybe it's because he was guilty or whatever. But he admits, again, what, how, what's our total number? I told you the total number here. 15 child murders. And if you, and again, I'll put this up on our discussion group, is we don't have information on 15 of the murders. So so it was never reported in the paper, all the victims. But yeah, we can't put A to B, you know, one to this person, two to this person, three to this person. It's, there's nothing out there for that. So he's admitting. And if, if, if Billy, Joey, and Craig were out there, like you said before, it was never known as a homicide or anything. So when they ask this guy, you know, who did you kill or are you responsible for these deaths? They don't have Craig, Billy, and Joey. Because no. ha- that's not going to be in an FBI list of kids that went missing because, A, we don't have bodies. B, it didn't go down as malicious. It went down as lost in a cave. Right. So it might not be a red flag in the 1980s for FBI to be looking for three boys lost in Missouri. Frankie, take this out of take. Go to the next level. Take Hatcher out of this. How how often has the FBI had somebody or had somebody of a, a person of interest, but they never saw they they go and go. Okay, I'm going to go look to see what murders happened in 1967 or what missing persons happened in 1967. And oh, there's none that are missing in Han- in Missouri in 1967. So no, wouldn't it's be there. A dead end. So if and it bothers me. It just really bugs me because if if 
And who knows? Who knows? But if 1967 Hannibal Police Department would have said, let's put a missing persons, let's put an APB out, let's put this as a missing persons case, this could have been solved. This might be solved by now. Because if it is a criminal case, then maybe they did have that person already say, I killed somebody in 1960. I killed three kids in 1967. But then they go and search it. They can't find it. And they're like, oh, this dude's just a kook. You know, he's just making up stories now because there's no missing person in 1967. I mean, the FBI gets dragged through the mud a lot on TV and movies as being janitors no law enforcement janitors you know i think that that you know and i don't know i mean well i mean maybe that's the mission maybe the mission of this podcast is to have this case reopened as a criminal case mm-hmm. you know maybe maybe that's what we do to to you know kind of change the conversation or add to it that it should be looked at as a criminal case now how do we do that? how we open an investigation well the problem with that is if we open it we're done we, we can't investigate we're locked out, you know, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, do we want the authorities to do it? As civilians, we have more flux. We have more flex than the police to do. The police have to abide by law and politicians. Mm -hmm. We don't have to. We can be the sluice. We can do things that police can't do. You know, there's proper procedure they have to follow. We don't have to follow that procedure. So, you know, it is this double-edged sword when when you get down to it. But, I mean, I think that, Man, that would be very... But, you know, sometimes, man, in plain sight, and sometimes it's just right there, it's just sitting there, and it's just a matter of connecting the dots, and, and that's how, like, you know, 40 years of crime gets solved. It does get solved. Um, there, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and possibly maybe, you know, when you look at the case of Henry Lee Lucas, right? Henry Lee Lucas admitted to 150, 160 crimes, and so a lot of those were impossible because he, he was in this state, and admitting to this at the same time. He was clocking in in one state while somebody was being murdered in another state, and then he was taking credit for it because the Texas Rangers didn't want to, you know, redact anything that they had charged him with, you know? In fact, George W. Bush, all right, a a president of the United States, when he was governor of Texas, he ordered a stay of execution for Henry Lee Lucas because even George W. Bush didn't believe he killed all those people. Hmm. So, you know, there are these serial killers that can admit to things, and then there's other ones that take credit for it. In the case of Charles Ray Hatcher, he was mentally ill, and probably some part of his brain was wanting to seek help and wanting to get help, and maybe that's why he admitted to all those things. I would find it very curious um, if there is a list out there in the FBI and it has three boys from Hannibal, Missouri on it, and nobody did anything else to that effect. I mean, you would think that the FBI would contact all those families. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's some kind of protocol there, right? There's a closure there um, that they would have to follow through with those the, these names, correct? I mean, if he's admitting to them, I don't know. That it's just sitting on a... Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, I do see on uh, this this PDF that I'll post to our our page. Um, it does say he confessed to sixteen, and, I, and there's only been five that have been suspected. The, so the so police have only suspected him of actually doing five. He, um, but you break, yeah, I agree. Again, I just keep falling back to the idea of we, you know, nineteen sixty seven to nineteen eighty. Um, or even 1990, let's say 1990. It wasn't like if a person gets arrested and he says, uh, it's a guy, he, and he says, I'm, I am killed I killed 20 people, I killed 20 boys, and uh, one, uh, you know, kind of details them, details some of them. It's not like the, the, that this police department, especially if it's a local jurisdiction, is going on the internet and looking to see if that that's happened, you know, I I, I just sure just have a hard time. Sure. I I, just, I can see in how many situations have we seen that the person has been, well, how many times has a serial killer confessed to doing so many more than what the what the um, the police officials can actually verify, you know? There's yeah, a lot of cases case, yeah. like that. Um, yeah. But who's yeah. to say that they didn't? 
you know again just because charles ray hatcher says he confessed to 16 and they can only find five of them who's to say that three of them aren't the missing boys of hannibal because they're not saw as a missing person <laughs> you know i don't know it, it's yeah. uh, it's really it's really interesting it's it well yeah well, that wraps this episode, though, right? Yeah. Uh, I do want to, real quick, uh, again, I love this thing, the PDF. Oh, a couple things here. His method of killing was sta- stabbing and strangulation. Uh, he is, uh, his type of serial killer, it says antisocial personality. Hatcher seems to be er- to have an urge to kill people and had to satisfy that urge. And then he it does ask, how close did killer live? And the answer was, Hatcher seemed to stay in close proximity of the victims, but drove or sometimes walked to the scene. Charles Ray Hatcher, Chris, is definitely got me thinking. Uh, what, where is he at in your – I know you're going to go over a couple other people real quick. Um, where is he at in your percentages? I mean, is he higher than – is he higher than John Johnny Wayne? Oh, yeah. Oh, most definitely. Um, so let me pull that up real quick since I'm sitting in front of my computer because it's right And here. he wasn't in a mental facility or a – no, and, and that's the thing. It's from 1963 to 1969. We don't know about his whereabouts. So, and I'm hoping, again, I mentioned that book. Uh, it has to do specifically about Charles Ray Hatcher in the St. Joseph area. And again, that's a three-hour drive. St. Joseph to Hannibal only takes one highway to get there, and that's Highway 36. So, yeah, so that makes it very interesting. So, percentage-wise, <laughs> I have eliminated Burdella. He is no longer on my chart. Yeah, okay? he's he's. There's no reason to go in anything else. He's done. John Wayne Gacy, I still sit at five percent, just a real slight chance. I bumped up Charles Ray Hatcher to fifteen percent. Oh wow, because you don't know where he was. Yes. So until we find out his whereabouts in 1967, he is not off my list. Now again, our good old boy, which we'll probably mention every episode until we solve the mystery of the three boys, but Ray Farrier is at twenty six percent. So he's 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 one quarter, one one fourth of the total pie <laughs> still. Well, um, well, when we start getting into local suspects, I think that's going to really. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be a little yeah, ebb and flow there. So we we might suspects that are on the percentage list still. Where where are they at? You don't have to give their names. But. Yeah, I'm not going to give the names, but the three percent and one percent. So real low, but they're oh. still on my list. I'm going to hope to change that. Yeah. And it's only two. There's others out there, but there's two known names that we have on our list that have gone into my percentages. So, Interesting. But yeah, we don't know. And again, we don't know enough research. We haven't done enough research yet on those two, in my feeling, that for us to be able to move those dials any. Um, so 40% still lost in the cave. Well, tell me about um, another Wayne as a middle name, Patrick Wayne Kearney. Yeah, I'm just going to lightly, these next two, I'm just going to lightly breeze over uh, just because of, uh, if I, Patrick is going to take long, the next guy's going to, if we did the whole thing on all I have about him, we'd be here for another two hours. So we're not going to do that. (laughs) More importantly, we're not going to do that because these guys are not directly connected. The two guys we mentioned before, Rob Bordello, we eliminated, Charles Ray Hatcher, he is a suspect. Uh, Patrick Wayne Kearney is not in any means a suspect for the Lost Boys. But the reason we want to bring him up is because I want to show you the mentality of what we were dealing with in the 60s. And, you know, I, I've i had these blinders on uh, for a while of thinking, well, it's the 60s. There's no such thing as child molestation in the 60s. That's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it is happening. And we'll see that more with our, our last example than this example. But I want to show you Patrick Kearney. He is uh, known as the freeway killer. He killed, uh, he, he preyed on young men in California between 1962 and 1977. And uh, he claims possible for as many as 43 victims, according to law enforcement, while some other figures have him between 21 and 28. Uh, he would pick up hitchhikers or homosexual males from gay bars and shoot them. And he usually uh, shoot them with 22 caliber bullets uh, so or 22 caliber weapon. And again, a little bit older in the ages age range there, but we we are having serial killers in the early sixties. And a lot in so California. Yes, it's an amazing state, yes. California, huh? A lot of killers over there. Very liberal. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so let's move on to the last one. And again, this last one, I'm not going to go through everything. I'm just going to barely scratch the surface. But Frankie, out of all the guys that we've talked about, I've I've gone through every single serial killer website. Ever, I got a book here in front of me called Serial Killers Dictionary that my wife bought a long time ago. I went through that. I've looked through them all uh, just to see if there's any any possible connections. Is your wife in the percentages? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, she was. She would have been. Uh, she would have been in the negative age territory Correct. at that point in time. Um, so, but we do. I want to point this one. This one out because it, first of all, it's super scary. And this one, out of all of them that I read about, this one is. This one just. This one. This one's scary. <laughs> just to put it as easy and down to the bone as I can. Dean Coral. Again, look him up. Uh, there is a huge Wikipedia page on him. There's a bunch of websites. There's a bunch of information. But he is known as the Candyman. And the reason he's known as the Candyman is because of the fact his his family owned a candy company called the Coral Candy Company. He worked in the military. Uh, he was in the military. He decided that he didn't like the military. So he decided to apply for a hardship discharge. So he only, and he got that. He only spent about 11 months in the, or 10 months in the service. He went back and worked for his family company. Uh, real quick, he... Um, there was a school across the road from the candy company. He used to hand out candy to the kids. Um, so that kind of gave him the candy man name. But that's not exactly how he got the kids to um, be in a situation where they could be molested. What he ended up doing was he befriended some kids, a 12-year-old to start with. And his name was David Owen Brooks. And what he ended up doing was having convincing David Brooks to bring friends and other teenage younger boys to Coral's house and would end up killing, molesting, and then killing those kids. Uh, So he had David Owen Brooks, first of all, was his first accomplice. And then he ended up adding a second accomplice in 1971, and his name was Elmer Wayne Hindley. And Elmer <clears throat> would get 200 bucks for each kid that he would bring to um, to Dean Coral. And Elmer was under the impression, though, that they weren't being killed or molested, and that they were just begin they were just being taken by Dean to be. Uh, uh, like a white slave ring, like to be put into slavery instead of what they actually were doing. Um, and so, it, again, long story short, uh, Elmer ends up getting getting a, getting upset that Dean ends up killing, keeps killing or taking his friends, and he does end up finding out eventually what was happening. And so he ends up turning on Dean and ends up killing him, and. Um, Interestingly enough, there is a. I did look this up. Most people may have already know the story. Uh, there's a Netflix show called Mind Hunters, and Mind Hunters does cover uh, this case in some aspects in season two. I tried looking it up and watching. I couldn't find the episode specifically, uh, but I did hear that they do cover this because Elmer Wayne Henley and David Brooks are both serving life terms in prison for being accomplices for Dean. Um, so it's very interesting. They never did commit the murders. Uh, they were the people that brought the kids to him. And then also, which I think is a little bit more, a little bit more concrete than bringing the kids to him, is that they helped bury the bodies as well uh, later on. So that I think that gives it a little bit more credence to be an accomplice to murders when you're burying the bodies. And ends up Elmer ends up telling Elmer and David end up telling police where the bodies were buried. They found a lot of them, uh, but uh, Dean ended up. Let me get you an exact number. I think it was. Um, oh, I can't. I don't have it right in front of me here. Twenty. Oh yeah, I do. Twenty-eight teenage boys and young men between 1970 and 73 in Houston, Texas. Jesus. Yeah. So that again, we're looking. So this at, was like a tag team, or like a 
So pretty much what would happen is that either David Brooks or Elmer Wayne Henley, Hanley would bring somebody to Dean Corll's house and they would assume that it was being for slavery, but instead what Dean was doing was molesting them and then killing them. And then later on, they end up helping uh, Coral burying the bodies. Jesus. But they never did commit any murders themselves. They've, and I have looked up both, both uh, Henley and Brooks. They've tried to uh, not appeal, but uh, they've tried to get paroled, I think a bunch of times uh, and they've been denied a bunch of times and finally got to the point where you can only, you can only, you can only try to be paroled so many times before you can't do it again. And they're both in that situation right now to where, uh, they got like 10 or 15 years they have to wait before they're up for parole or have an option to ask for parole again. So, yeah, it's it's a weird case. Um, but just the background of, of what he did with 28 kids between 1970 and 73, and that only puts it, you're looking at three years before. So you're still, I mean, you're early, early 70s, late 60s kind of time period. But again, uh, I'd highly recommend if you don't know anything about the Candyman, take a look at this case and just kind of kind of dig into it a little bit. There is some very, very deep stuff uh, in, in this um, that I'm not going to go into. But I definitely advise if you want to learn more to look it up. But this is also where we get Don't Take Candy from Strangers, right? I mean, because prior to this... This is where, this is where this comes from. This is where that that idea becomes, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, a tipping point, right? Where everybody now understands what that means to not take candy from strangers. I mean, this is what this guy's legacy brings to, you know, the entire area. And I just think it's it's incredible research that you did today, and I think a lot of people are more aware of what goes on. But wouldn't it be interesting if we had somebody, Chris, that that actually studied this for a living and did forensic psychology and understood and actually talked to murderers before trials and talked to people that did molest children and what the theory was and what the evidence was before that. Wouldn't that be interesting, Chris, if we had somebody to talk to? Absolutely. Well, guess what, Chris? On our next episode, you're going to meet that person. From all of us here at the Lost Boys of Hannibal, I'm Frankie Campbelletta. I'm Chris Ketters. And we'll be seeing you. Down the dotted line You were going your